Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Over the last uh, six weeks, we've been involved in a series called The God That You Should Know, or The God That We Should Know. And uh, I want to thank you, really, because it's not been an easy series. Um, it's, it's very difficult to talk about the attributes of God in English that's easily understood. And as my little grandson would say, there have been lots of ununderstandable words, Papa. Um, but you've hung in, and we've, uh, we've got to the last of the series that I'm going to do. Um, we've covered so far the sovereignty of God, the love of God, the holiness of God. Last week we spoke about God's uh, immutability, His unchanging nature. Um, I I actually went into my library and checked uh, a volume, a systematic theology, and one of the authors had written chapters on attributes like actuality, aseity, necessity, impassibility, immateriality, life, mercy, righteousness, goodness, and that was only a selection of his chapters. So you can be very, very relieved that this series is only six weeks in length. Uh, I'm not going to try and unpack all those other attributes. Were I to try, I suspect I might give you a hint of what actually eternity feels like. Uh, And as Woody Allen said, it's really long, especially toward the end. (laughs) So this is the final message. uh, And I want to briefly, (laughs) I want to, no, take away the word briefly. I want to try and cover the three omnis. Okay, God is omnipotent, God is omnipresent, and God is omniscient. Two of them, I hope, will be relatively brief and straightforward. And considering the third one, I want to throw you a little bit of a curveball and possibly leave you with more questions than you have answers. But then that's probably been the nature of the series thus far anyway. So let's get straight into it and begin with omnipotence. Now, omnipotence is all about God's power. He is all-powerful or almighty. The word almighty is used 57 times in the English Bible, and it's never used of anyone but God. The Hebrew word is the word Shaddai. The Greek word is the word Pantokrator. And both have the idea of God being absolutely self-sufficient and all-powerful. He has within himself the ability to bring about whatever he pleases. His power is eternal, it's infinite, it cannot be checked, restrained, or frustrated. And the scriptures are clear on that subject. Psalm 62 verse 11 says, Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, power belongs to God. In Daniel chapter 4 verse 35, the prophet said, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand, (coughs) excuse me, or say to him, what have you done? He is omnipotent, all-powerful. In Mark chapter 14, verse 62, Jesus actually says to the Pharisees, he said, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. Notice he doesn't say you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Father or the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God, but he uses God and power interchangeably. They are inseparable. God is power. 
Jeremiah 32, verse 17, Our Lord God, it is you that have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. There's nothing that's too hard for you. And actually creation, the creation that surrounds you and I, bears witness to that eternal power. Whether you look at just your garden and the gorgeous variety of flowers, or whether you go into quantum physics and the, you know, those, those six numbers that scientists talk about, that any one of them maneuvered by just a fraction of a degree would make the world uninhabitable. Whether you go from flowers to or, or the quantum world, we see God's eternal power in that which he's made. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, it says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he has made so that people are without excuse. This eternal power can be seen as we look at everything from, you know, as I say, quantum physics to the, to, the, um, to the universe beyond us. And the interesting thing is Job in chapter 26 verse 14 says, and what you see are simply the outskirts of his ways, the small whispers that we hear of him. So you look at creation and say, and, and Job says, it's just the outskirts. It's just the outskirts of the city, as it were. When you're coming into a big city, you come to the outskirts, but it can take you a long time till you get in the middle of it. And Job says, what you see in all its magnificence are simply the outskirts, the whispers of his ways. The most incredible display of his power is said by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 to be the resurrection of Christ from the dead and his exaltation to God's right hand, to the right hand of power. And Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20 says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us would who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. And Paul rapes and pillages the Greek language, trying to convey to us the measure of this great power. And in that verse, verse 19, he uses six different Greek words for power. There's the word exceeding, which is the Greek word hopabeo, and it means to throw something beyond the mark. If you've got a mark that says this is sufficient, he's able to throw well beyond that mark. Then there's the word greatness. In the Greek, it's megithos, which means the vastness, the intenseness of the power. Then there's the word power, which is dunamis, from which we get our English word dynamite, the explosive power of God. There's another word there, it's translated by our English word working, and it's energia, from which we get our word energy. And then there's mighty, which is the Greek word ithkos, and it means ability or strength. And then he goes back and uses another word, power, kratos, which is dominion. Paul runs out of superlatives trying to describe the power of the God that we worship. So omnipotence then is about God's ability to do whatever is possible to do. Sometimes people ask, you know, is there anything that God can't do? And surprisingly, and given what I've said so far, the answer is yes. He cannot contradict his own nature. The Bible says he cannot be less than he is. So, for example, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, and Titus chapter 1, verse 2, it declares it's impossible for God to lie. So God can never contradict his own character and nature. You know, occasionally some people come to me and they ask silly questions, imagining that they're being very clever and that by their question they've put God over a barrel. And so they say things to me like, well, can God make a square circle? 
Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Can God create a married bachelor? And you just sigh and point them to C.S. Lewis. And this is what C.S. Lewis says. His omnipotence means the power to do all that is intrinsically possible, not to do the intrinsically impossible. You may attribute miracles to him, but not nonsense. This is no limit to his power. Meaningless combinations of words do not suddenly acquire meaning simply because we prefix them with the two words God can. It remains true that all things are possible with God. The intrinsic impossibilities are nothing but non-entities. It is no more possible for God to do the we than for the weakest of his creatures to carry out both of two mutually exclusive alternatives. Not because his power meets an obstacle, but because nonsense remains nonsense even when we talk about God. Nobody can do it like C.S. Lewis can do it. Omnipresence, second one. The, the word presence obviously means here or close to or next to, and the word omni in front of it gives it universality. So God's omnipresence is that God is everywhere, here, near to, next to. He is present everywhere at once. There's nowhere where God is absent. So Psalm 139 verse 9 says, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I free, free, flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 23, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I can't see him? declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. And then Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You might be thinking, well Don, how do you explain the passages in scripture where it seems to suggest God's absence from a particular setting? So for example, Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord. Well, that's easy. He actually didn't. You know very well that God followed him, the storm, the whale, or whatever it was, the big creature, uh, and he wasn't away from the presence of the Lord. So, well, Don, what about passages like Ezekiel chapter 10, where the prophet sees the presence of God lifting off the temple and moving away out of the, uh, out of the city? And what about 2 Chronicles chapter 32, where it speaks of the Lord leaving Hezekiah in order to test him? What's happening in passages like that? Well, the reality is people can and do feel as if the Lord has truly withdrawn his presence. The question, I guess, is, is, is that truly the way things are. If you can imagine a continuum of God's presence, um, perhaps uh, at one end you've got what I call the structural presence, the, the, the um, overall omnipresence of the Lord. At the other end you've got the manifest presence of the Lord, the presence of the Lord so powerfully there that everybody in that particular situation is aware of it. And I think he, at the transcendent end, is always present. You, there's nowhere you can go, Psalm 139 says, where he isn't there and isn't present. But there are times when we either feel like 
he's not there, or we especially, feels, uh, we especially feel that he is. There's a classic example in Genesis chapter 28, where Jacob is running from home, he's running from the murderous intent of his brother, and, and he comes to a certain place, uh, darkness falls, he sets up a stone as a pillow, and he goes to sleep, and while he's sleeping, he has the dream that we refer to as Jacob's ladder. And the Lord speaks to him in that dream. And when he wakes up, it says, Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Now, I, su I suggest to you that the Lord was actually present there before Jacob arrived. It wasn't that the Lord suddenly came to that place. He was there before Jacob got there, but when Jacob has his dream, he suddenly becomes aware. And so that transcendent structural omnipresence suddenly becomes this powerful sense of God's presence, the manifest presence of God. I, I actually believe that God eagerly desires to be present with us as much as it is possible, but some of that seems to depend on you and me. The James, in the book of James, it says, you draw near to God, and he will what? He will draw near to you. You draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Does it mean he's absent if you don't draw? No, but there is a sense, the manifest sense of his presence is available to people who push in and long for it. So uh, omnipotence and omnipresence. The last one, omniscience. Omniscience means that God is all-knowing. And classically, it's, people would say he knows everything about the past, he knows everything about the present, he knows everything about the future. And again, Psalm 139 says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar, you search out my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Proverbs 15 verse 11 says, Even hell holds no secrets from God. Do you think he can't read human hearts? And then Isaiah 46 verse 9 and following says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. In Reformed theology, the reason that God knows the future apparently, is that he has meticulously decreed it before the foundation of the world. So he knows the future because it's already predetermined. He knows what he's going to do. And that's why eternal, eternally the future is settled. Now, throughout this series, I have uh, dared to take issue with that kind of theology, and I want to do so again this morning. I want to point out very clearly that what I'm about to say to you are simply my own musings, and, the, and this amounts to the curveball that I said I would throw you uh, earlier in the message. Um, I'm not alone in saying what, I, what I'm about to say, so in case you're thinking Don, Don's you know, way out on a limb all by himself, uh, I'm not alone. But classic Reformed theologians would probably have heart palpitations over it, and perhaps some of you might do so as well. I hasten to add this is not a gateway position. Gateway doesn't have a position, okay? Um, having studied the scriptures, you can have a position uh, and settle wherever you think is best in terms of your study. I guess what I'm trying to do in a way this morning is prod the bear and, and hopefully at least make some of you think. Now, I know that can be a very, very unpleasant 
um, sensation. You know, the old saying says 5% of the people think, 10% of them think they think, and the other people, the other 85% would rather die than think. So uh, here's, here's a chance to prod the bear and, and make you think. If God has exhaustive knowledge, foreknowledge, and he's decreed all things from the foundation of the world, including future things meticulously, then there are no open possibilities regarding the future. The future will definitely be that way and not this way. It'll be his way and no other way. As I pointed out last week, however, the scripture seems to suggest that some things remain open at least to some degree. It's clear from the scripture that there are things in the future that are absolutely settled in God's mind and his purposes. He knows exactly what he plans to do, and he tells his people beforehand, ahead of time, what he will do. So Isaiah says things like, Behold, the former things have come to pass. New things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And from the beginning, who else has always announced what's coming? So what's coming next? Anybody want to venture a try? Don't be afraid and don't worry. Haven't I always kept you in form and told you what was going on? So these scriptures seem to indicate that God definitely has some things planned and he speaks to people about them. There are things that were and are truly settled in his overall purposes. The life, ministry, the death, resurrection of the Messiah, the acquisition of a bride for his son, the ultimate victory over Satan and darkness, the new creation realities that Matt read about before. These are biblical certainties, and God has announced before time how they will run. Having said that, I'm not at all sure that the presence of some certainties in Scripture necessarily require and teach that all other events are exhaustively settled in the mind of God as certainties. God can and does predetermine and foreknow whatever he wants to know about the future, but it looks to me, as I study the Scripture, as if he chooses to leave some of the future open to possibilities and allows them to be resolved by the decisions of his free agents. Now, some people would throw up their arms in horror and say, Don, you're limiting God's sovereignty. But, but I would want to say, surely it takes a greater, wiser, more powerful God to steer a world filled and populated by free agents than it does to steer a world of pre-programmed automatons. I think the power and the majesty and the wisdom is required is even greater. We saw in last week's study how God changes his mind and how at times he changes his plans in response to, God, to people's decisions. And my question is, why would God need to repent and to relent if he was absolutely certain before eternity how people would act as they did. Surely common sense tells us that we only regret a decision we have made if the outcome is other than the expected one or other than the one we hoped for. And as I read the scripture, I see times where God expresses surprise at people's response to him. So for example, in Isaiah chapter 5, there's a story where, uh, about a vineyard, and, and the scripture goes, my well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up, cleared out its stones, planted it with a choice vine, built a tower in its midst, and made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth 
brought forth wild grapes. Now, this is a parable about God and Israel. He said, I did everything I could to set these people up to produce fruit, and he expected that they would produce fruit and was profoundly disappointed that they didn't. What about Isaiah, uh, sorry, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6 and 7? God spoke to me during the reign of King Josiah. You have noticed, haven't you, how fickle, Israel has, uh, how fickle Israel has visited every hill and grove of trees as a whore at large. I assumed that after she had gotten it out of a system, she'd come back, but she didn't. So he expected, he assumed. What about verse 19? And I imagined that you would say, dear father, and would never again go off and leave me. Here's imagination, uh, expectation, as I assumed, and, and the Lord seems to be surprised and disappointed at the reaction of his people. Surely expressions of surprise and disappointment can only be authentic if the future is partially open and consists of possibilities rather than is already exhaustively settled in his mind. If everything is eternally known and settled, how could it be that he expected, imagined, or assumed that something different would happen? If God tells us that he thought something was going to occur while actually being eternally secure that it wouldn't, isn't, isn't that being a little bit duplicitous? Isn't that being a little sort of like I'm toying with you a little? What about this passage, Jeremiah 7.31? And they have built the high places of Topath, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. The Living Bible says, I never even thought of that. The same phrase, by the way, occurs in Jeremiah 19.5 and Jeremiah 32.35, where God says to his people, you are doing things that I never even thought of. How could, it, how could God say, it never entered my mind when it was apparently, according to Reformed scholars, eternally in his mind? He knew it. He planned it. Isn't that something of a contradiction in terms? Now, here's another oddity. If all future things are exhaustively known, God calls his covenant people to faithfulness, and at times he tests them to see if they will lovingly choose him above all others. Now, in the classical view, God already knows in advance what will transpire, and these scholars would say that in these tests where God tests his covenant people, they are, they're not designed to reveal anything to God. They are designed to test the covenant partners so that they will find out what's in their own hearts. Now, it's probably true that when God tests you, you will find out what's in your own hearts. But the fascinating thing to me is that is not the way these passages are presented to us. They are not, and the people found out what was in their own heart. This is Abraham's test. When God tests Abraham and says, will you give me your son? He is about to kill his son when God steps in and it says, don't lay a hand on that boy, don't touch him. Now I know how fearlessly you fear God. You didn't hesitate to place your son, your dear son, on the altar for me. Note that it doesn't say, Abraham, now you know. It is presented to us explicitly that the test was that God might know. Deuteronomy chapter 13. 
If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder comes to pass concerning that which he has spoken to you, saying, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or to the dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Not that they would know, but God says that I will. What about Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 32? When the rulers of Babylon sent emissaries to find out about the sign from God that had taken place earlier, God left him on his own to see what he would do. He wanted to test his heart. Why, why would you test someone that you know is going to fail and then say that you experience and express grief over their failure when you were eternally certain ahead of time what would happen? All of those things are a struggle for me. Here's another perplexing or interesting passage for reform, uh, if, if the reformed view of God knows everything exhaustively uh, is the correct one. Genesis chapter 2, verse 19. Okay? Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. Here at the very beginning, God says... I'm going to let you have authority over the earth. You name the animals, and here it says, I'm going to go down and see what he's called them. Now, the Hebrew here, translated by the English word to see, means I will discover and I will investigate what he's chosen to call these animals. Again, why would God need to investigate what he eternally knows? Now, you might think I'm a bit out on a limb here, but I like to think that God might have been really surprised and actually amused at times in Adam's choices. Where did you come up with giraffe from? Elephant, good choice. Platypus. And putting on his best Australian accent, he says, you gotta be dreaming, mate. Or was he bored and yawned somewhat and says, I knew from eternity what you were going to call him. No surprises. Right from the outset, God seems to empower humans to be genuine partners in bringing about the future. And it appears that the future is to some extent open and dependent on what we do. Now, again, Reformed scholars would probably be having some even um, significant heart palpitations by now, and they would on, want to intervene and say, oh, for goodness sake, Don, this is, this is what we call anthropomorphic, anthropomorphic language. Now, again, that's a very big word. Beckett would say ununderstandable. It simply means that the Scripture is portraying God in human-like terms and in pictures that are meant, not meant to be taken literally, but are to help us come to some understanding of an aspect of his character. And so they would say, it only seems like he's changing his mind and expressing surprise and disappointment. He really isn't at all. It's just for our benefit so we can have some kind of understanding. He's far above all those things. They are designed for psychological effect and they are not theologically significant. And I would want to say, look, I get that. I realize that the Bible is full of metaphors and pictures. I know there are pictures in which God is described as things like a rock, an eagle, or a fire. And I know he's not a rock, and I know he's not a blast furnace, and I know he's not a bird. I understand that they are pictures. 
They are metaphors that do help us understand one aspect of God's character and that they aren't meant to be taken literally. However, thinking about those things, it really does seem to me like God changing his mind or being saddened and surprised by our responses seem to be of a different order entirely than saying he's like a rock or a bird. Now, I'm not suggesting there's an exact one-for-one-like correspondence, but I don't think it's the same thing as calling him a rock, a fire, or a bird. And my question is, is he just toying with us? Is he only pretending to be disappointed and surprised or delighted? And my question then is, if, if he is, if he is toying with us, how do you have a, a genuine, authentic relationship with somebody who's simply playing you? Now, you could be sitting there thinking, Don, you're messing with me. Are you really saying that you don't think God is omniscient? No, I'm not. I do believe that God is omniscient. I'm just not sure how that plays out. And what I want to do is let you into a little secret of where I'm, after the books I've read, which are multitudinous, this is where I sit. And it may not be permanent sitting there. Okay, I might, I might change my mind tomorrow. Uh, I'm, I'm known for changing my mind. I'm not immutable, okay? I'm, I'm trying to learn. But what I've come to is that I would suggest that although God possesses omniscience, in relating to us, he may not exert or exercise that attribute to the utmost extent. Though he has the capacity to know all things, he may choose not to know some things in order to have genuine, authentic relationship with you and me. Now, that idea is not novel, okay? Theologians speak of God's divine self-limitation. They call it kenosis, where God freely chooses for the sake of authentic relationship with you and me not to fully exercise all of his attributes or his power. And the classic passage on kenosis is Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, kenosis, by taking on the form of a servant. When we read that passage, by the way, I've put because there in brackets. It's not in the translation. The translation simply reads, who though he was in the form of God. The idea, however, when you say, though he was in the form of God, he laid that down, kind of indicates that, well, he's God, and on this occasion he said, all right, well, though I'm God, I'll do this. Actually, the Greek is better translated, because he is God. It's not a one-off act just like, all right, all right, I'll do that. It's, listen, this is my MO. This is how I function. I, in order to have relationship with you, lay these things down. The self-limitation of God. And I, my, my question to you, my thought is, I wonder if this is what he does with omniscience when it comes to relating to you and me. There are some things like the bell curve that I mentioned, that are certainties. He has some plans, and they will come to pass, but he leaves other options open in order for you to decide, a libertarian free will decision of where you will sit in relationship to those purposes. You are not simply a pre-programmed automaton. You get a genuine choice that he doesn't manipulate and that he doesn't like a peeping Tom say, I know what you're going to do. He genuinely says, 
What, do you, what will you do? How will, how will we deal in this situation? As I was thinking along these lines and kind of wondering if I was out on a, on a limb, I got a book uh, of systematic theology, one that I actually don't look at very often. It's up on the top shelf of my library. And I pulled it down, opened it up, and I thought, I'm going to read what this guy says about omniscience. And there's a man by the name of Dr. Adam Clark, well-known uh, commentator of Scripture, and he, I, I found that he said this. He said, God has ordained some things as absolutely certain, and he's ordained other things as contingent or as possibilities. And I thought, oh, dog, there's somebody else who's out on the limb. How do you do? He then went on to say this, omniscience implies the ability to know all things, but is not the obligation to know all things. And then, in the most ununderstandable words that I've encountered all this week, he said, God is omniscible, but not exhaustively omniscient. I went to the dictionary to try and find omniscible. There's not a dictionary on earth that I've consulted that has that word. I looked up them all online and in my library, I could not find that word. But I think what that means is that he is capable of being absolutely omniscient if he chooses to be. But he is not exhaustively omniscient for the sake of relating genuinely with integrity to you and me. He could know, but for the sake of authentic relationships, he chooses not to. I've got a dear, dear, or I, sorry, I, I had a dear, dear prophetic friend. Most of you or many of you will have met him, Tony Saxon. And Tony used to say something to me, and the first time he said it, it, it kind of, from that time, it's haunted me. And he said, Don, I can see, but I don't look. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, you know, early in my marriage, he said, I just have this gift of I look, I can see. And he said, um, Christina's wife would buy me a Christmas present. And he said, I would look. And I knew what the present was. I knew what color it was. I knew it would fit on this finger. And he said, I'd sidle up to her and say, hey, great choice of ring. And after a couple of Christmases, she got really ticked with me. And she said, you know what? You just spoil everything. You, you, how can I have a relationship with somebody I cannot surprise and I cannot... I'm sick of this, Tony. Anyway, he said he used to do it to his kids. He'd be going by his son's bedroom, knock on the bedroom, open up the door and say, hey, that girl, and he'd name her and say, that you've got a crush on. She's nice. And rather than be surprised and delighted, the boy would say, why do you have to do that, Dad? Why do you just peek into my life? I can't do anything without you seeing it. Why don't you just keep out of it? And he said, I learned through damaging relationships, that looking at everything that I can see if I want to was ruining my family's life. And you know what? As I thought about it, I wondered, maybe the Lord is like that. He, he, he knows. But how do you surprise and delight somebody that knows exactly what you're going to do before you do it? How is it possible to disappoint and grieve somebody who knows eternally what you're going to do. Might it be, this is just a question, might it be that God in the pursuit of a genuine relationship of integrity and love with us holds back all he's capable of doing in order to allow you to enter into it 
without feeling you're being manipulated and maneuvered and played. Such divine self-limitation, if that is what it is, wouldn't make God less than God as far as I'm concerned. It would make him even more lovable and even more attractive. That's my thoughts. <laughs> you don't have to agree with them, okay? It is not a gateway position. It is where I've landed, and honestly, I'm absolutely open to someone coming and saying, for goodness sake, Don, read this, and it changing my view. I'm really aware that this has not been a simple series of messages. It's really hard to talk about God's attributes simply. But let me finish, and musicians, if you would just get ready, just wait a minute, but if you'd be ready. But let me finish by giving you what I hope will be four simple takeaways. If you didn't understand the all the un understandable words and concepts, that you would get these four takeaways, all right? Number one, God is in control even if he chooses not to be meticulously controlling. Number two, he has, in my opinion, granted us libertarian free will to enable authentic personal relationships of love to be possible and to develop between him and us. Number three, he sovereignly decided to make some of his actions contingent on our responses, our requests, and our actions. What we do really matters, and we are to be partners in his plans and not simply pawns. And number four, he doesn't overwhelm us with the force of his attributes, and at times, I think he genuinely self-limits in order to make those relationships relationships of integrity and authenticity. And for me, this makes God even more majestic and attractive. And this, to me, makes a God worthy of my worship and my allegiance. And, and I think the scripture teaches us of a God like that. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.